after breakfast What's before lunch? It's Austin, Texas It's weird brunch Because typically Just leave it I out I would leave it, yeah I lived most of my college off of uh, Jack in the Box tacos that were next to the bed when I woke mm-hmm. up. I mean, really though, it's like cooked. Mexican, like yeah. that was just straight up cheese enchiladas with rice and beans. Like to me, that's fine for probably more than twenty four hours sitting out. Yeah, you just walk more by and pick at it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, more than that. Uh, but I'm just yeah. So I had the carne on it though. So is that? No, that Change wouldn't opinion. do anything either. It's like chili. Yeah. It's like chili in a can. Yeah, it's not like real meat. You know how you have a can of chili on your counter at all times? You walk by and get a little spoonful? I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> if you could leave cottage cheese out like that, that's, it would be no question. You just make it more cottagey that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just like some really in-home homeless behavior, right? In-home homeless. Like it, it might make some people feel more comfortable to have a spoonful of chili when they walk yeah. by. Welcome to my home. I this is the living room. Welcome Feel welcome. Feel like a spoon spoonful of chili in your mouth. Um, <laughs> sorry. Oh no. Do you think people see? For you, it would be beans, though. It would have to be beans. No, you have to eat raw tofu. Just a handful of raw tofu. Does it not come coming in a can? over? I'm no, sure there's it comes in versions. that plastic container mm-hmm. that and you it's have real to wet. wet. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do not drain it. You have to. I. You know how you can drink it afterwards ew <laughs> do people do that i hope not that sounds i'm real sure gross. somebody's done that oh yeah i'm upset that yep. just makes me think of like i don't know placenta or something like the tofus were born in this water <laughs> and like then you take the tofus out <laughs> and you eat the tofus and then there's this leftover milky i like that it's supposed to be just because you don't eat meat or live things and you're trying to make it yeah, live. It has yeah. to be. You're anthropomorphizing That's what it. also weirds me out about like all the fake foods. It's like if if you don't want to eat my meat like as like, you know, a preference, why do you want it to look like Because that's how it's marketed to us. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Because I feel like it makes sense kind of with a a fake burger patty because that's just Mm -hmm. basically the most efficient way to cook a burger for a bun. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you have to think, but I feel like some feel, of them, like the bacon stuff or whatever, are yeah. like different. Than, yeah. Because I don't know the tofurkey. The tofurkey really is stuff what it like is. that. Yeah. I mean, if they called it something different, it wouldn't make any. If they called it, what is it like, uh, texturized vegetable protein nuggets? I would eat them too. Mm-hmm. So it's, I guess it's eat more palatable to people that way. Because a lot of people when they first when they first stop eating meat. They probably don't know what to That's true. replace it with. So it's very easy to be like, well, then I'll just get the vegan or vegetarian right. nuggets and then right. just kind of go from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. There's or also like a like p- mouthfeel. to understand. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, yeah. a chicken nugget and a vegan chicken nugget look the exact same and they don't taste that Morning different. Morningstar sausage patties. Like mm-hmm. I would eat those over regular sausage Mom and Spencer patties but they're more too. expensive they are more expensive brandon eats those every morning it's yeah breaking the bank <laughs> damn called no out, longer brandon called mm-hmm. out on the nationally recognized yes. podcast <laughs> nationally rec state lubies recognized lubies recognized is the most important part do you think we're why lubies <laughs> got closed down 
our close lubies. I posted about the the, the lubies at um Steck. Steck and Mopat closing and lubies. I mean, they follow we've talked about this, but follow. they follow us and they were like, "Don't worry, there's still plenty of other lubies locations <laughs> open like ready to serve you whenever you want." And we still have it like, gone. Thank you, lubies. Can we do do we feel a pod guilty? from a lubies? Absolutely. I, I, also, I, don't see why not. I saw did you send it to me or some it was on socials for a hot minute, but it was a girl who got married in a lubies. No, I didn't send that to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um Leah sent it to me. I'll send it to you. But I, th- I feel like Luby's is just like open to everything. Yeah. And they would like be all up in it if we broadcasted live from a Luby's. Yeah. Well, uh-huh. not live, but, you know, did the podcast from yeah. Luby's. So I'm very willing. There'd be a lot of mouth noises in that episode. Do you think yeah. some of the elderly would think we were talking to space people? <clears throat> we Probably. Could, we- we could have them on and we could talk about exactly that. Let's get some old people hot takes. That's what we need more of. <laughs> yeah, right. That's what we need more. I don't want that. Oh. And the old people mouths, okay. like old people mouths just in general, like it's rough. Yeah. It's rough. And that's why a lot of the more investigative podcasts that I listen to and it's like they go talk to the old people who were involved in whatever and they're always like, and it's like and i have to turn that shit off like i cannot listen to it i mean the whole time we're born to death we're we're drying out and so they have to get their saliva prepared to speak well if they would just drink more water while they're talking what i said is based on i mean it's true though it's just asmr whitney it's just old person Like chiropractor ASMR, horse chiropractor ASMR specifically. From Christine. It's fine. You don't have to look at me like I'm going to hit you. I will hit you later, but not on the podcast. I don't need people to hear that. Is it? Okay. We can say it's brunch time, I guess. It's 11. No, it's 10, 19. It's It's definitely brunch time. It's between breakfast and lunch. You can order brunch. You can order mimosas right now. what time does breakfast end for you? I don't eat breakfast, so I, I you really eat don't have brunch breakfast. again. But at I can't eat breakfast because Brandon eats all of the sausage. Oh, no, <laughs> and I don't get any. Oh, Haley's being starved <laughs> by her precious husband. Yeah. Brandon's the villain in I this situation, obviously. <laughs> sausage patties. Mm. Now mm. I want sausage. Yeah, I want coffee. Yeah, I. I'm going to definitely have to stop and get some coffee on the way to Grandmama's. Grandmama's. Happy 92nd birthday, Barbara Lamond. Babs. Has she ever gone by Babs? Yeah. Bob Bullock called her Babs. Um, and Barbie. The She worked at the Capitol, the Texas State Capitol, for a very long time. And all the lawmakers had very cute little names for her. I used to work with a Babs who was at least... 85 and she was very svelte and she would wear clothes that were hip this was in 2009 to 2012 cool. yeah she'd have her thong hanging out though yeah. every now and then and it'd be like respect but also ma'am we're in a <laughs> we're in an office, we're in an office building there's a judge who works from here who was almost on the plane to Dallas with JFK. What are we doing? Mm. It was a weird building. I really, 
I went to school with a girl named Barbara. Do you remember her? No. Like I had never you, heard of I anyone. I don't know anyone. She that was you like knew in your grade. I don't. Something. I did not talk to anybody. She was younger than me. Friends. I just remember being just like I wasn't friends with her. I just remember being like, oh my god, it's a girl named Barbara, and it's like the year. You know, she's like a teenager named Barbara in in our year. Did she Lord, go whatever. by Barbara? Yeah. It's hmm. so formal sounding. <laughs> it is. Like, it's a kick-ass name. Yeah. And Barbie is arguably Barb, yeah. the most iconic nickname of all time. I had a friend in elementary school named Barbie. Not elementary school, middle school for a year. Hmm. Yeah. I think I'd go by, like, Babaloo or something. Ba- Babylon. Babadook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think my first child, Babadook. Babadook. Baba. Baba. Just be a a middle school kid with a grandma nickname. Yeah. Baba. All the like more classic sounding names are coming back. One of my coworkers, um, he she, he has like a three year old and they named their son Theodore. Oh, and that's... when they were naming him in the hospital, the nurse said something like, oh, we, this is like the fourth yeah, Theodore this week. Yeah, Theodores. And yeah. so they changed it so it's not Theodore. It's um, What's the Spanish version of Theodore? I don't know. So they changed it so it would be because well, his changed wife is Hispanic. So they're like, so it's just like a little right. different. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think they sing the... Theo was a little kitty cat, a little kitty cat, a little kitty cat. No, because I call him Teddy. Oh, yeah. Teddy's cute. Yeah. So be you like, do not want to be no, called Teddy anymore. No, he's not named after Theodore Roosevelt. He's named after Teddy Ruxpin. Yeah. I've been thinking Lucille. I A like Lucille? Dorothy, and then her nickname is Dottie. That's Dot. fun. I like Dolores. You can call her Dolly. Or Ozzy. And then not explain or, how you sourced Ozzy from yeah, Dolores. <laughs> Ozzy's a cute name for Ozzie's a kid. A cute name. Mm-hmm. And it's... Like gender neutral, yeah. so mm-hmm. you're setting that kid up for success. Yep, Claire. <laughs> you can name your kid Ozzy Mandius. Ozzy Mandius. Ozzy. Sure. <laughs> Claire's a good one. Claire. Claire's a fat girl's name. <laughs> what the fuck? It's from Breakfast Club. Okay. Yeah. But it's not. It impacted me because it was at Molly Ringwald, who everyone was like, you look like Molly Mm. Ringwald. That's a redheaded woman I can think of. And then uh, my middle name is Claire. Yeah. Marie Claire. That's her real name. Lisa's Marie Marie Calendars. Presley. Mm. (laughs) Marie Calendars. Calendar is a name for a child. Callie. Um, that means she'll be psycho. As long as making a lot of hot takes on I names. Am. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we're all a little tired, mm. so welcome to Weird Brunch. Bienvenido. Bienvenido. Um, yummy. See, nailed it. We're at Lisa's brother's house. That's yep. woods adjacent. Yeah. I mean, it's woodsy. woodsy. Um, it feels woodsy from the inside. Like it's not like a cabin. It's like a very cute mid century modern house, but it's nestled. It has vibes. It has vibes and it's nestled. And <laughs> her brother's out of town. So we came here to do a sleepover and we were supposed yeah. to cord last night, but I got well, I was really hungry and then we ordered food and then I was 
I, I feel like it's my fault at yeah. 8 45 yeah yep. i was high though i mean i would have fallen Don't asleep blame anyways, it on but, yeah no. but i know the sun went down <laughs> is and, what happened and that's you know and I'd, we were i'd be the worst john vampire McAfee. oh yeah we watched <laughs> that john mcafee documentary yeah what a weird weird thing strange man strange guy mcafee Get that software shit off your computer right now. Just go unprotected. Fuck it. Just raw dog Fuck the, the internet. internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like Web 3.0 probably doesn't have a lot of regulations right now. I don't know what that is. Yeah, I have to figure that out too. I just hear people talking about it what? in Wait, the same space Web that people talk about crypto. Is that like the third version of the internet mm-hmm. that yeah. we're on. So the first one was a bunch of static pages, right? Mm-hmm. Second one is the interactive pages we live with now, and stores and shops and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the third version is going to be hyper focused on you and how you engage in the internet, which is then going to bring you into a metaverse scenario that is where we are moving to i don't like it plug me in baby it's the meat verse versus the metaverse it is it's meat verse that's true Mm -hmm. the meat realm meat realm it's all meat it's all meat meat in the end man just meat okay okay whatever (laughs) i don't know are you trying to get our energy up i'm trying i almost i was i don't know what time i woke up but i was like I could do like my, I have a little dance workout thing that I like. Oh, yeah. On YouTube. Fitness um, yep. Marshall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I subscribe to it because we get a credit that oh, we can cool. use. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to do it. And it's only $15 a month. <coughs> but they're fun little sessions. Yeah. I've done um, the free ones a couple of times before. The 30 minute one goes by like that. Really quickly. Yeah. Because you're dancing to yeah songs that music. you like. Yeah. And that's the thing that I like. That why I subscribed basically well because it's fun and they're entertaining but also because on YouTube if you do anything longer than like one song it's got to be non copyright mm-hmm. music or you're paying for it so like Zumba where it's just like it gets kind of boring for me so this is the good way to go what songs have you danced to that you didn't like hmm. how do you dance to a song you don't like I mean, aside from the... Well, it's not that I don't like those songs. It's that I don't, like, recognize that I'm tired. Dancing to songs that you already know or, like, like, you know, it's just like dancing around your room almost. You just don't think about it as much. And I, that's what I'm looking for Okay. in a workout class. Okay. Well, when you danced in school and high school mm. and stuff, I'm sure... Even the songs you liked, you probably stopped liking because you had to listen to them so many fucking times. Mm, yeah. Or just certain parts of songs that you had to like drill down on because yep. it was the hard part. <coughs> that whole Christina Aguilera album that came out in 2004. Dirty? Uh, no. Was it? No, it wasn't Dirty. It was the one with um, Dirty was Fighter on it. I'm pretty sure Fighter was the name of the... Mm, I think it... Mm, I don't know. I'm not up to date on my Christina Aguilera discography. No, she just was in a ring for the music video for Dirty. Which was kind of a life-changing music video yeah. for me. Wearing chaps. Mm-hmm. 
I was like, go off, girl. Was it stripped? Stripped makes sense. Did you look up the song? No. (laughs) Okay. I guess I could have done that. We're going to go the long way. But uh, (coughs) I don't feel like it. You feel like telling your story, Whitney? Because you said yours was kind of short. Mine's long. Mine is short. I have a, I have two. If you'd like to do, I can do a, a preview one because it's based on my journey to the yeah, Titanic. Stripped. It's up to you. Which, what, what does your soul want to tell? The, what story does your soul want to tell today, Lisa? Well, I went to the Titanic. The actual Titanic. The actual, t- I saw part of the actual Titanic. And in this experience, they give you a card, and on the back is a name of an actual passenger and some details. And then you go through the whole thing, and then you find out if you lived or died. Dang. And so I did a brief little look-see on... Uh, at your person? At my person. So my person was, I don't want to subscribe, Irish Examiner. <laughs> well, why not? I'm surprised you weren't already subscribed. I know. Okay. So uh, my person was Edith. (coughs) I forget her last name. We'll get to it. But Oh, yeah. Tree Stall. So she was a minor's daughter. She was born into a family of 11 children in 1886. She was on the Titanic getting... She was a third class passenger. So I already knew, Mm -hmm. right? I already knew Mm -hmm. I was effed. And she had two children with her, and one was nine months, one was two years. You can't be nine months and a two month old, right? Uh, I don't. I mean, she not if they're your biological one. children, though. Yeah. No. yeah. So she was going to her. Oh, her last name's not Trace Doll. That was her daughter's name. She was going to America to meet up with her husband, who'd already gone, uh, Benjamin Peacock. And, uh, yeah, I know. So he worked in a factory, saved up, and then was like, here's money. Come live here. There are two versions of what happened that night. One is that a crewman was helping Edith into a life uh, boat. (laughs) A life boat. The baby slipped from his grasp and fell into the icy waters. Edith and her daughter jumped in to save the baby. Another version is that they were in a lifeboat, which capsized. Benjamin was at the White Star Line offices in New York at 7 a.m. the morning after the tragedy. He feared his two brothers were also on the Titanic. That's a weird thing to say. They were not, Edith and her children were not listed on the passenger list. He told his landlady he lived in hope that they had missed the ship. But when the Carpathia arrived, his family were not on it. We died. Dang, we died. I was the baby. Whitney was the the toddler. Mm -hmm. Lisa was Edith. Yes. Obviously. Yeah. Also a fun name for a kid right now. (laughs) Little Edith. Yeah. Edie. Edie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, (coughs) So, yeah, there's more, but I thought I'd bring everyone down. Share that you died on the Titanic. It was your past life. I did send Whitney a photo of all of the names and the numbers. Yes. This is... 
the Titanic who? Museum in the Luxor. Yes, gotcha. the finest, Vegas. the finest. Not the one in Branson. No, not no. that one. Gotcha. Um, but I do want to tour all of them now. <laughs> yeah, and I am going to Vegas in about two weeks. So, so you can go see if John you said the he will not go with me. I asked Blame. Brad and he said he will also not go with me. <laughs> so I am probably going to go by myself and cry the whole time. <laughs> just <laughs> just you like lone Vegas. woman. Yeah. Well, I really want you to be walking around with one of those really like yard cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> just like, like with they don't let you bring. Any, oh, you can't bring in anything. No, because too emotionally charged experience. And there is the um, the stairway that Jack and Rose walk down, but you cannot take a photo of it. You have to pay for it. Mm. Not doing that. But I think you're sneaky enough to to do a little click click. Yeah, on the side because you can take pictures of all the, the s- glass I'll, like, cage stuff. <laughs> so- I'm gonna <laughs> get some. <laughs> Okay, minority report. I'm going to get some of those, you know, contacts that totally exist that have cameras in them. And I can go blink, blink. blink. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What is this woman doing? Double O win. Standing in front of it, like overtly (laughs) (laughs) And it's just pictures of a fucking staircase in the end. It doesn't matter. A recreation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (sighs) That's great. Well, does that mean you want to go first with your story? No, I would like to bounce back. That oh, okay. Was, that was a um, appeti- appetizer mm-hmm. the story. Appetizer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Haley, do you want to sure. go first? I go first. Do it. On October 10th, 1978, a 33-year-old lawyer named Paul Morantz had just gotten home um, to his Pacific Palisades neighborhood in Los Angeles. He was hurried to get inside It was the as it was the first game of the dodgy Yanker... <laughs> Dodgy Yankees. <laughs> I'm so waking up. Dodger Yankee World Series. Good God. And Paul was eager to sit and relax in front of the television um, after a very challenging couple of weeks. As he approached the door, he noticed his mailbox was full, which was unusual because he usually emptied it daily. He nonchalantly. Oof. You can't do that? No. Me either. I, I, well, we don't have a mailbox in front of our house. We I have to go either. to the box. Not and anymore. I hate that. I would always check the mail coming in. Mom hated it because we would cover her surfaces. Yeah. Anyway, so he noticed that the mailbox is full and he goes and he nonchalantly lifted the top of the mailbox and reached his hand inside. And suddenly a scaly head darted out, mouth agape, as vengeful fangs sunk into Paul's left wrist. Dramatic. Yeah. Who wrote this article? Me. Okay. (laughs) As he screamed in pain at the realization that he had just been bitten by a rattlesnake, he thought to himself, those bastards, they had actually done it. Three weeks prior to this evening, Moran successfully sued a rehabilitation clinic called Synanon for wrongful imprisonment and other charges on behalf of a married couple. The couple accused the clinic of holding the wife against her will and attempting to brainwash her. They were awarded $300,000 in the settlement against Synanon and its president and founder, Charles Chuck Dieterich. So Chuck Dieterich was originally a sales executive from Ohio who moved to Southern California after his first divorce and in 1956 began going to Alcoholics Anonymous after his second wife basically gave him an ultimatum of you've been a drunk since you were 12 years old. You need to get your shit together otherwise I'm leaving you. So Diedrich was able to get sober with AA. His second wife still chose to leave him anyways, but Diedrich 
quickly became kind of like a rising star in the local AA organization. Mm-hmm. He was a favorite speaker. He was very charismatic. He bought fully into AA and helping get people get sober. And he went to an AA meeting every day. And he's actually said to have coined the phrase, today is the first day of the rest of your life. That is like, I don't know if you've ever been to an AA meeting, but mm-hmm. that's one of them that they use. The only thing that Diedrich didn't like about AA is that they didn't accept other kinds of substance abusers. It was only alcohol. Um, NA was founded in 1953, but it wasn't well organized. So mm-hmm. there just wasn't anything kind of for addicts that weren't alcoholics. So I feel like you still don't really hear about NA nearly as right. much. Is it hot in here? I I'm feel fine. okay. You, okay. Have a, you have a flannel on, ma'am. I'm not taking it Okay, off. well, that's choice. <clears throat> so over the next couple of years. Be mildly hot. Yeah, then. be slightly uncomfortable. Over the next couple of years, um, Diedrichs uh, gathered a following in his AA. He basically started kind of like a separate group and started hosting meetings in his apartment. And eventually the group rented a small storefront in Venice Beach. Um, The original name of the group was the Tender Loving Care Club. Uh, I like that. It's fine. That sounds like an orgy club, like swingers club to me. I mean, it could be both. Why not? Orgy or swingers. Yeah. But, so that group, it included all types of addicts because that was kind of mm-hmm. his goal with it, right? He shortly reorganized it and began to call it Synanon, which he says is something that he came up on his own as a kind of portmanteau of syndicate and symposium and anon. Another person said that he came up with it from a another addict that was there slurring their words trying to say symposium and seminar but either way it's called synanon s-y-n-a-n-o-n so well into the 1950s addicts were considered kind of hopeless and incurable most ended up in hospital or jail or dead though AA had been around since the like 40s um that was more as a seen as like a mitigation tool um or a support group it, not really seen to like cure alcoholism mm-hmm. right which is true that's one of the things they talk in aa is like once an addict always an addict just because you're sober it doesn't mean that you're not an addict anymore but just the concept around addiction was people who had addiction problems were like inherently broken and right. you couldn't really fix them in any kind of meaningful way so synanon became sometimes they say the first but at least one of the first residential rehabilitation programs in the united states where you actually have to go somewhere and stay for a significant amount of time to get sober and this is still in his apartment they've they kind of grow at this point but he's out of the apartment they have like a storefront and they have like an attached kind of Mm -hmm. residential something right so synanon did a lot to convince the american public that addicts could be saved and in 1959, Synanon moved from that small storefront to an abandoned armory on the beach, which would have like rooms and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And Diedrich is credited with a lot of really positive, innovative thought in the ideas of um, rehabilitation and drug um, addiction during that time. And he far- focused a lot on... F- he far- farted. <laughs> <laughs> he f- he- I am too. I'm a turtle. Yeah, live. it's okay. He focused a lot on marginalized groups that most institutions would just like not have anything to do with. So what was Synanon like that was so much better than any other addiction program? Well, first, to gain interest in Synanon, you had to be interviewed and accepted. And upon arrival, those who 
the newcomers were forced to quit drugs cold turkey. So they Ooh. would not set you up with any kind Dangerous. of withdrawal like programs or anything like that. They had to raw dog it for the most part. For the first few days, you get initially clean, right? It's a raw dog heavy up. Mm-hmm. It's, our, it's one of my favorite words. Um, Same. So after that, after they had detox, basically, the first 90 days being in the community, you had absolutely no contact with your friends and family on the outside at all, which is not great but also 90 you days get, get it. long but yeah you never know what's triggering someone yeah is it their family members is it their drug dealer yeah and who's going to enable them to right. mm-hmm. so you would enter into a one to two year program that consisted of three stages aimed at preparing the addict um, to reintegrate into society the first stage members did community work and housekeeping and labor so they were kind of like working at the community the second stage, members worked outside of the community but still resided within the actual community itself. And then the third stage is you would go and live on your own, but you would still regularly attend meetings coming mm-hmm. in, which that's really kind of how rehab is done in a lot of ways without maybe the you're a housekeeper when you first show up. But there's that kind of phased approach where you mm-hmm. reintegrate back in. I mean, it's in. the same thing as um, like trustees in jail. Yeah. And if you're kind of more in the right. lesser trouble than yeah. you're yeah. get more so the main besides that kind of like phased approach to sobriety as opposed to showing up to a hospital getting clean and getting put back on the streets basically the main practice that synanon used was a therapeutic exercise commonly referred to as the game the, oh mm, the game was a session oh, no. in which during which one member would like be in the center of the group and they would talk about themselves, and then the rest of the group would then hurl inserts and mm. insults and criticism at them. Mm. And during this practice, members were encouraged to be critical of like everything about them and use harsh language and be just profane. Um, and really, I mean, when we think about it now, it's just break the person down, right? Um, Take them to the rock bottom. Some, yeah, yes. this happens in some cult type shit too. Mm-hmm. So um, this is one of the earlier forms of attack therapy which there's a link to that but i think we can all kind of surmise what attack therapy mm-hmm. is we we were all in in middle school yeah <laughs> we, and it made us better people right it when people did. were mean to us i so. came out so much better and it's also one of the things that like you would be in this like attack therapy the game session where you're yelling insults at people and then you were expect to compartmentalize that just to the game and then go back into the community and function civilly with each other, right? right? So the game served not only as Synanon's most prominent form of therapy, but it also worked for a way for leaders to collect intel and opinions about community members. So while playing the game, your frustrations didn't even need to be true. The things that you were saying did not even need to be true because you were trying to find like hot points for people. So lying was actually encouraged. If you're accusing something of somebody and they had a certain reaction to it, then that gave some piece of information to the leaders there about right. the state of this person, right? Um, and these sessions could last anywhere between one hour to 48 hours to two full days. Yeah, so oh some sleep deprivation, all that kind of stuff. Can we do one? Just yeah. the three of us? Yeah, for sure. So there was no hierarchy asleep. in the game. You would, you would just be, be like, like, you stupid I'm bitch. I'm going to go to sleep now. No one will ever love you. You're just like, I'm sleepy. I'm, I'm sleepy. <laughs> Can you stop? 
Because there was no hierarchy in the game, members could freely criticize Synanon's highest leadership, who would then take member concerns into consideration in designing policy. Mm-hmm. So this created a lot of openness and equity, like the feeling of equity mm-hmm. in this community, right. right? From the start, Diedrich, our main, our main guy, made it pretty clear that treating addicts was only kind of like a part of his larger mission. He really wanted to create or experiment with the idea of a new society that would quote, transform the world. And over the years, the organization grew and it built businesses and started schools. And its goal was basically a utopian revolution, right? Synanon. Yeah. Synanon was a new way of living and should be as important to the members as any of the religions that they might have previously come from. Um, so over the next 10 years, so he founded it in 1958, and then it started to grow and pick up steam, and they're moving into kind of like larger spaces and getting a lot of really positive attention because they are taking addicts off the street and getting them sober, right? Um, so over the next 10 years, Diedrich eventually changed his ways thinking about Synanon and transformed it into something kind of more similar to like a progress movement. And in 1967, Synanon purchased the Club Casa Del Mar, a large beachside hotel in Santa Monica, which is still there. And it's at, and they use it as its headquarters and a bigger dormitory. And this was still where everyone was going under undergoing treatment for drug addiction. And he also used this to kind of further that thought of creating this utopian society. They created a school for members for both children and adults and Diedrich wanted members to like mentally change in order to improve the society around them and this school was part of like educating to that right mm-hmm. so in Synanon's transition to this alternate society in kind of 1967-1968 the program changed their lifetime rehabilitation idea to where you would do a one to two year program and you would slowly learn to adapt to society. Well, Dietrich was basically saying now drug addicts would never be well enough to return to society. So nobody could ever graduate the program. Mm. 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 Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> so Synanon also began to welcome non-addicts because this whole concept of the game kind of started to form into more of like a actual self-improvement mm. kind of thing. And he said <clears throat> that he was getting out of the dope fiend business that's fucking rude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, don't. Yeah. Not, yeah. yeah. So in ni- the 1970s, they moved late 80, 1960s, early 1970s. They moved from a drug treatment program to a psychotherapy program and started attracting middle class people through the Synanon game as a form of self-improvement and alternative therapy. He also established a sort of boot camp developed to um, disciplining juvenile delinquents sent to Synanon by their parents in the court. So they had had, they established a really good reputation. Uh, That's arguable because they also did some shitty like real estate shit. But regardless, like courts were ordering people to go Mm -hmm. to Synanon to get sober and they're ordering kids to to Synanon to get straightened out and that kind of stuff. Right. The the organization began marketing the game and Synanon is a new type of like, revolutionary therapy they started to grow really rapidly and they purchased properties all in california also new york and detroit and a couple other places and they also started like building buildings without getting permits and created trash dumps without mm-hmm. when they're not supposed to and they built an airship without telling anyone an airship? an airship airstrip sorry oh oh it's like uh-huh. whole, i got my, i got marble mouth this yeah. morning sorry you need more water i do i'm out of water 
So they, they basically pissed off all their neighbors kind of everywhere they went. And also you have to imagine they're establishing in these neighborhoods and then they're filling a house full of addicts. And it's like, sure, the neighbors don't love that. Right. Even though they're helping the area, theoretically, it, they started having some legal issues associated with that. And they also started having some tax issues. Mm. However, the organization was granted religious status by the federal government as the Church of Synanon in 1964. So that kind of went away. Fantastic. It was very financially advantageous to Dietrich and the Synodon organization. And Scientology mm-hmm. and every religion. List, name every, yeah, exactly. By the end of 1976, Dietrich had assets worth $22 million. Um, they acquired this wealth um, as they expected all members, which was now in the thousands, to give all their money and assets to the org after joining. Mm-hmm. They acquired this wealth because they expected all members, which was now in the thousands, to give all of their money and assets to the org upon joining. Mm-hmm. Not great. Um, they also made money off of, obviously, their therapy programs, donations. They have very had various small businesses, which they didn't pay their workers for because they were all members. Right. And um, real estate. Dieter's ideologies continued to change and kind of became more bizarre over time. From the beginning of Synanon in 1958, new male recruits to the drug rehab program were expected to like shave their heads and cut their hair down, which I think is a little hygienic thing a lot of the time. But then yeah. they started doing it as punishment for mm. stuff. And then in the 1960s, the Synanites, which is a weird word, the Synanites were shaving heads, their heads voluntarily as a sign of solidarity. And by the mid-1970s, it had become mandatory for everyone of any gender to shave their head upon entering the organization. Hmm. And it's also rumored that this is because Diedrich started losing his hair and he was starting to go bald. Mm, and so he kind of, yeah, projecting. Yeah. So the organization had grown from a small rehab clinic in someone's apartment to a uh, kind of like a compound almost mm-hmm. that consisted of families and addicts still at this time and individuals and professionals and people kind of coming in and out depending on their level of involvement with the actual program and Dietrich had some interesting experimental opinions of the family union for example after six months of life babies were taken from their parents and raised in a hatchery oh god yep and mothers who wanted to see their kids too much were called head suckers <sighs> what Cool, we're out then. Yeah, well, mm, yeah, I guess some indoctrination going on. Children were re- reared in communal um, synonym schools, and children were also subjugated to the game. Originally, one of the rules of the game was like everything is good to go except for violence. Like you can't actually physically touch mm-hmm. each other, but you can say whatever you want. That changed when they just got rid of the nonviolent rule. So children were like hit in the face and knocked down and like punished. Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then, like, in nec- the next, like, a couple of years later, Diedrich decided that children are a bummer, so nobody can have any more kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's really harshing my vibe seeing all of. these beat-to-shit children. I'm not virile yeah. anymore. Yeah, well, to be fair, he said that they were just too costly, which is, also, like, fair. Mm. So, with that, males, so during the process of the game, males were convinced and forced to have vasectomies performed by synodon doctors and a few women who were pregnant ended up being basically forced to have abortions because of this yeah in 1977 when dietrich's i think this is his third or fourth wife at this point i don't remember his wife betty died he went ahead and married he chose a volunteer and married for another wife and then he decided that to save others from the pain of death or divorce he ordered all married couples to break up every three years and take new partners as selected by synanon 
kind of like when twins switch off oh, every year. Oh, check out. Dang. Shout out. Very, we didn't watch a lot of television very last night. weird television. So he declared that married Sinanites should split up and find new partners. He started this by breaking up his own daughter's marriage. And about 600 couples were divorced in the following year because of this mandate. Fuck. Yeah. And then a lot of them were assigned new partners just mm-hmm. randomly. As a whim. Yep. Okay. So I had mentioned earlier that uh, they had a kind of juvenile clinic at mm-hmm. the Sinanon compound. So children who had been assigned to Sinanon began running away and a kind of underground railroad railroad had been created in the area to help return them to their parents not their parents at synanon their parents parents would like send them to there they didn't necessarily have to be synanon members so this was kind of like the out like the just the juvenile Mm -hmm. clinic that kind of made a lot of um, not great feelings in the neighborhood because it was literally other people in the immediate area that were taking these kids in and i'll get to one one of those people what happened to them anyways in a second People also started to leave because th- things are starting to look a little culty to a Just lot of a people. Little. Just a tiny Just a bit. Tiny bit. And then it also started getting violent, right? So beatings of Synanon opponents and its ex-members called split ease occurred all across the like area because people were trying to leave. Um, like they'd find him on the street? Yeah. And- Holy shit. Yeah. Much of the violence by Synanon had been carried out by a group within Synanon that Diedrich has put had put together called the Imperial Marines. Mike Rinder. Yeah. Which these folks were trained and Diedrich adopted the new kind of idea of okay. So the, the Imperial Marines were basically his personal police force. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones who were carrying out a lot of the beatings within the organization when people started to try to defect or the children are doing anything. And then they were also having clashes with external forces. Like now they're starting to get a lot of attention because they're, you know, shaved head, mm-hmm. uniform kind of looking people occupying smaller neighborhoods. Yeah, with, with, yeah, kind in the seventies, yeah. like mm-hmm. people are starting to kind of recognize this might be a problem, right? So they became Diedrich's personal police force and incited violence against internal synonym detractors as well as external critics. In the mid nineteen seventies, over eighty violent acts were committed, included, including mass beatings that hospitalized teenagers and ranchers who were beaten in front of their families, were eventually contributed to the Imperial Marines. So the ranchers is, so one of the neighbors was a ranch, right? Mm -hmm. And kids started running away to the ranch and there was a couple there and I don't have their names up in front of me. And they started basically helping helping them. And the Imperial Marines got word of it, went over to this rancher's house, pulled him out of the house, beat the shit out of him in front of his own kids. Yeah. And this is where the legal proceedings really start to pick up because this shit keeps fucking happening. So Diedrich's still living in his compound, keeping his people together, and he started ordering like mandatory aerobics and running and diets and health regiments. And he's really intensifying the demands of the group because he's trying to do a squeeze where he's basically pushing out the rotten fruit so he only keeps the people who are the most compliant, right? Mm -hmm. And in the mid-1978, NBC Nightly News produced a news segment on these controversies starting to surround Synanon. And following the broadcast, several executives of the NBC network and its chairman allegedly see, received just like hundreds of death threats from Synanon mm-hmm, members, mm-hmm. right? And Synanon is litigious. So they would start like suing people for, I don't know, what is it? Defamation. Defamation and shit like that. So one longtime member, Phil Ritter, was openly critical 
once the forced sterilization started to happen. Sounds like Mike Rinder. No. Same last name. Ritter, R-I-T-T-E-R. Yeah. Pretty close. Mm. And the direction the group was going. So he, he it was him and his wife and his daughter, and he was trying to get them out. And they were, they were like committed to Synanon. They were one of the couples that like got divorced because mm-hmm. Diedrichs told them to anyways, but he started to kind of come too. And one day Ritter was returning home from the supermarket and two young men approached him and without saying anything, they beat him with wooden mallets, leaving him on the ground, fractured skull, all that almost died. Right. And so that, those kinds of instances just kind of keep mm-hmm. kept happening from Mallets. these Imperial guards. So yikes! they're still running the clinic at the same time. And another story is there, this other couple, Ed and Francis Wynn, ended up at Synanon in 1977 after another clinic suggested that Francis, who had bouts of psychosis, go to Synanon to see mm-hmm. if she can get cured, I guess. And so she went in thinking that she was going for like a counseling session to like figure out how to approach the, her current mental crisis. But within minutes of walking through the door, her head was being shaved and she was being screamed at by a stranger as a part of the game. And telling they were telling her that her husband didn't want her and that only Synanon could help her, all that kind of stuff. And Holy then, shit. Yep, and the next day, Francis was shipped by bus like across the state to go to the next what Synanon the fuck? clinic. Yeah. And this and they told her, like, well, this is your new home now. And Ed had absolutely no idea. So he went back to visit her the next day and she wasn't there. And they said, yeah, she's not in Santa Monica anymore and you can't see her for another 90 days. And he's like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, what the fuck? And so Ed didn't know what to do. So he calls a lawyer. He calls Paul Morantz, mm-hmm. our, our snake, snake man. man from the beginning. So Paul originally wanted to be a writer, but he was convinced to go to law school as a backup. And he wrote <laughs> for Rolling Stone and he made a couple of wrote a couple of scripts for like some made for TV movies. But he gained kind of notoriety as a lawyer because he sued a group of nursing homes that were kidnapping homeless alcoholics, shooting them up with Thorazine and collecting the Medicare and Medicaid for treating them. So he kind of started getting Mm -hmm. into this kind of space of, you know, helping protect addicts and other marginalized folks. He worked on that, got done with that. He was planning on going back to writing. And then that changed in June of 1977 when he got that call from Ed Wynn. And Morantz and Ed basically pressured Synanon to release her. She was released after nine days. And when they picked, Ed, when Ed and um, Paul picked her, the wife back up, they saw this like sea of like shaved head people in overalls. Paul was like, holy oh, shit. Like this is like something's going on. Yeah. And this was like, he was like, I'm fucking taking this organization down because this can't just be an isolated incident incidents with this one woman. So Paul started kind of like digging in and doing research and making contacts. And he started to try to kind of warn the rest of the world about what's Mm -hmm. going on in Synanon. And he first sued the organization in 1977 on behalf of Francis and Ed, um, claiming that she had been brainwashed, kidnapped, brainwashed, and tortured by a group of people for the purposes of financial gain, despite emotional instability. And they were awarded $300,000 in the judgment. And then Morantz began to work just like obsessively to get other members out. And he started working with the county to try to see what the the health permits were. They didn't have any fucking therapy permits because it wasn't originally billed as therapy. Mm -hmm. It was addiction Mm -hmm. recovery, which wasn't really regulated in the same way. Then it was religion. Yeah. And then it was a a tax exempt religion. So it just kind of like snowballed forward and the city surrounding it couldn't 
really do anything to stop it. They didn't have the power because then by this point, they had so much fucking money that mm-hmm. like, what were they going to be able to do? He very quickly <laughs> rose up on Diedrich's hit list because he's obviously trying to take him down. He started getting threatening phone calls coming to his house at all hours. And he's really concerned when the threats just like stopped out of nowhere because he's like, they're fucking they're in my something. backyard mm-hmm. probably yeah. right now yeah <laughs> so all this culminated with the his attempted murder by the imperial marines via mailbox rattlesnake uh. in 1978 and the incident along with the press coverage prompted an investigation by the police and the government into synanon so what happened that day so that these i don't remember their names but two of, of the synanon imperial what is it called whatever police force yeah they came and they put the snake in the mailbox and it was a rattlesnake so they cut the rattle off so he wouldn't like warn him holy yeah shit. yeah exactly so obviously very very premeditated also those are some pro snake handlers mm. well so part of the imperial guard or whatever training that they did they were like out on a ranch of so the snake they got they like got from the ranch because they had snakes that right. they got mm-hmm. i'm i will say if anybody knows anything more about the story they know that i'm glossing over a lot because so much shit happened with this organization so six weeks later, the Los Angeles Police Department performed a search on the ranch that Diedrich had been using as his home base and found a recorded speech by Diedrich. He was one of the guys that recorded everything. He's Naturally. Nixon. Mm-hmm. He's an L. Ron Hubbard, right? So he found this. They found this recording where Diedrich said, we're not going to mess with the old time, turn the other cheek religious postures. Our posture is don't mess with us. You can get killed dead, literally dead. These are real threats. <laughs> Oh, good yeah good job bro and so he's like in this like panic he's like they're they're draining the lifeblood of us and they're expecting to play by their rules and give them money and they should be scared of us and then he started talking about paul and he's in a way he says i'm quite willing to break some lawyer's legs and next break his wife leg his wife legs and then threaten to cut their children's arms off that is the end of that lawyer that is a very satisfactory humane way of transmitting information i really do want to get an ear in a glass of alcohol on my desk holy shit yeah Yeah. (laughs) he basically that's pretty positive that he would have been associated with this attempted murder right so Diedrich and the uh, a couple other people from Synanon were arrested on December 2nd, 1978. BT Diedrich was drunk when he was arrested. There it is. Yep. Okay. So the two folks, it was Joe Musino, Musico and Lance Kenton, Kenton were the two people who um, put, the, put snake the snake in, in the, the thing. Box. And they pleaded no contest. It's snake in a box. <laughs> <laughs> they pleaded no contest to the charges of assault and they were given five years and a year in prison and five years probation. That's pretty well. So the lawyer survived this. Yes, he obviously. did. He was spent six days in the hospital. Okay. It's interesting because when he was coming home, he was actually coming home from a meeting with the police department because he was requesting protection because he knew that what was happening and mm-hmm. he had just bought a shotgun like the day before all that kind of stuff. Little did he know <laughs> it was going to be a snake. Yeah. This is why you don't check the mail. Yep. Yeah. No. Well, this is, this is what this whole moral of the story is, right? That's what I'm learning. Yep. So Dietrich was sentenced to five years probation and sent and yep and fined ten thousand dollars and also was barred from having any affiliation with Synanon moving forward. So absent of that charismatic leader, the group started to flounder. Um, people are also kind of wising up to the cultiness of all of this, and Synanon was really starting it was struggling to without having a leader. 
and their tarnished reputation because this news was fucking everywhere, mm-hmm. right? And then the Internal Revenue Service revoked their organization's tax exempt uh-huh. status and then charged them seventeen million dollars in back taxes. I was gonna say, well, is that retroactive? Yep, yep. And so that's completely bankrupted Synanon, which formally dissolved in 1991, and Diedrich died in 1997. And then to this day, Morantz, who is still alive, he's in his early 80s, still suffers lifelong consequences from the rattlesnake venom. He has some neurological issues, and he also has to receive blood transfusions every other week because he cannot create. Is he a cutie <sighs> old man, though? He's a cutie old man. There's a really good, the like California Center for Lawyers did a long interview about him because he didn't just stop there. He went up against um, the Moonies, Scientology, and a couple of other smaller cults for the same reason. So he kind of like switched his career path to getting people... Yeah. Out of cults. It's astounding. He's still alive. He's, yeah. That's and he, wild. I, the interview that I saw with him was from like 2007 or 8. So he would have been in like his late 60s. And he looked like older. Fucked up. I'm yeah, sure. For sure. So, but well, yeah. Just like blood transfusions on every the reg is exhausting. Yep. Yeah. Every other I, week. Yeah. I think I would, I'd be like, Meow. just let me go. just gonna die then. Yeah. So that is the story of Synanon. They also made a movie during the middle of Synanon mm-hmm. being popular, and it has Eartha Kitt in it. She's Wait, like, in like the pro Synanon movie. It's not a, so. I don't know if it's a if that's how it was like billed, but it it's like a movie. It's a not movie like a documentary is, like, or anything saved like by that. Synanon or something. yeah, kind of yeah. Interesting. I watched the trailer to it, and it's that very like ex, um, exploitative kind of like she was a fast woman like kind yeah. of thing, and I was like, I can't watch this. Very Eartha Kitt. Oh. Wit, do you want to go next? Yeah, I'll go. I'll get squished in the middle. Why don't you just make me That's in great. the middle? I want this documentary series. Yeah. Where is she? There's a surprising not that many. The That show I told you about, Colt Liter, L-I-T-E-R. I think I told you about it. He has a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he did a whole thing on Synanon. Yeah. Um, it was longer, so I couldn't listen I to it. I didn't listen. I haven't listened to that yet, but he's referenced it before in the other episodes I've listened to. It's just nuts. It feels because they didn't, you know, didn't end with like a mass death or anything like that. But that's pretty fucking intense. They just had a bunch of fun deaths along the way. Yeah. I just can imagine like the game, the idea that you're just sitting in a little room and everyone's just yelling at you. at you. Well, it's not that different from some of the stuff that they do in in rehabs and therapies like sitting down in front of the attic and telling them everything that they've done to like ruin your life yeah we did that yeah it was fun i don't also don't understand why they do that because addicts are also narcissists so just even having that attention even if it's negative attention i think reinforces Mm -hmm. something right that's my opinion Mm -hmm. there was a i did a story a while back about a guy who moved in with his college age daughter and like some roommates and they did that yeah and he pushed castration so now yeah i'm like hold up well scientology does that too maybe not the castration part of it but the tell it the reverse of that which is tell us everything that's you've ever done wrong in your entire life and then they use it against you yeah going clear man well I guess we'll talk about someone who, well, we'll just talk about someone, right? Cool. <laughs> let's just talk shit right now. Yeah, I love it. Share the tea, bitch. Okay. So everybody knows the name Cleopatra, right? You coming heard of her? Cleopatra. This is not the coming at you, Cleopatra oh, um, band. <laughs> Going on. It's the real Cleopatra, right? 
But a lot of people don't know. She had, I think it was five siblings, three girls, two boys, one of which is a girl, her sister named Arsinoe or Arsinoe. It's pronounced both ways. But what in the Game of Thrones hell? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's the deal with Arsinoe the fourth? Everyone's wondering. Cleopatra's younger sister. So they think that they had the same father, probably the same mother. Everybody, it's yeah, it's usually no, right, pretty. Firmly. I mean, but it was a billion years a ago or whatever, thing, yeah. and they people really wrote more shit about obviously Cleopatra. There's not a lot known about Arsinoe. Ptolemy the twelfth. That's their dad. He had five kids, like I said, three girls, two boys. All of them reigned at some point even if it was super, super brief. Yeah, so there's the cool, they're the Kardashians of the, the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so Sounds like she's like Rome Kendall. is mm-hmm. obviously the superpower in the Mediterranean at the time, but in the 40s BC, it is going through a lot of civil war. And Ptolemy's oldest daughter, Bernice, had been executed a a decade earlier with help from the Romans after she tried to, like, take the kingdom away from her dad. She's like, we're rising up. Um, Didn't work, though, huh? Didn't work. She got... Grounded. uh, Grounded for life. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) that leaves Cleopatra, Arsinoe, Ptolemy XIII, and Ptolemy XIV. And, you know, all of them are up for grabs. In 48 BC, Cleopatra's brother, Ptolemy the 13th, they also think that she could have been, they could have been brother husband yeah. mm-hmm. or considered co-rulers of the kingdom. So he gets, Ptolemy the 13th is like, I'm sick of Cleopatra and you need to go out to Egypt and manage things out there. And Cleopatra is like, no, no, no. Arsinoe at that time, while they're kind of bitching at each other, is like, you know what? I'm going to Egypt. I'm going to be a rival pharaoh. Also at this time, Julius Caesar is like, I'm hanging out with Cleopatra. and We're talking. We're talking. He declares Cleopatra and Ptolemy the 13th co-rulers again and maybe gave Cyprus to Arsinoe and the other Ptolemy. There's so many Ptolemies. There are 14 of them. Yeah, there's like a billion of them, right? Caesar, though, is still kind of weak. They're trying to dominate Rome. Ptolemy the 13th and Arsinoe ally themselves against Cleopatra and Caesar. Arsinoe is able to carry out a destructive siege in the capital of Alexandria. So she's somewhat successful, but she's not super popular. She's no Cleo. Like her she, troops betray her. They negotiate with Caesar in exchange for Ptolemy the Thirteenth, who Caesar still has. He had captured him. Roman reinforcements arrive. Caesar's victorious. Ptolemy the Thirteenth gets killed and they capture Arsinoe and they're going to put her in Caesar's like we won parade and have her like handcuffed and be like look at this dumb bitch also she's still she's like 16 15 or 16 like she's she's a little baby 
but yeah, she's uh, a dumb bitch. Yeah, like, she's just like doing cool shit. Belly too. full of milk. But when she is in the parade, all the Romans kind of pity her. And because Cleopatra is still her sister, they're like, okay, well, we're going to let you live. Even though, like, you're captured. Yep. Like, you're our you're little still, You're a 16 year old thing. You, everyone makes mistakes. Yeah. It's fine. Mm, also, sex. Yeah. Oh, well. So they send Arsene away to live in the temple of Artemis at Ephesus instead. And Caesar is like, cool, she's gone forever. Cleopatra, don't even like think about it anyways. Cleopatra is like, yeah, she may be at the temple of Artemis, but I still know she's a fucking little bitch. And Very older Caesar's sister like, uh, I mean, the title of this is like, oh, yeah, I'll talk about it later. Because I don't want to give it away, but I feel like you probably know it's coming. Cleopatra is like, Caesar, I just really don't even like knowing that she's out there. Like, it just really pisses me off. A couple years later, <laughs> Caesar gets famously assassinated. Who did it, Brute? So Caesar's dead. Cleopatra is like, tight. I have an infant son, little Caesar. Stop. <laughs> his name Stop was, it. His name was Caesarian. Yeah. Oh. Which made me think, does the term cesarean yep. come from Caesar? And it's rumored to people say that Caesar, to bring Caesar into the world, they performed the first C-section or cesarean. Roman law under Caesar decreed that women who were so fated by childbirth must, must be cut open if they're dying. Also, if you watch the new episode of the new House of the Dragon. Yeah, House of the Dragon, the new Game of Thrones. It's there's visceral. Very, very gratuitous and unnecessarily violent cesarean going on there. But it was because the baby was breached. And so uh, probably similar here where it's like they're yeah. either both going to die. Yeah. yeah, both of them are going to die or, or you, you can, can save the kid, yeah. basically. But the other Possible Latin origins of the word include the verb sedere, which means to cut, and the term sesones, which is applied to infants born by post-mortem operations. All right. Little brief overview of the cesarean. So Caesar's dead. We got little Caesar out there. Cleo's Can't stand hanging out with little Caesar. Caesar. And she's like, well, now there's there's a someone needs to claim the throne and I'm not about to let anybody else come up for it. And she's still had her eye on our away this whole time because she stole her bra and stretched it out. And you found it years later in there. That would be <sighs> treacherous. This whole sibling. story does feel like a threat. Yeah. <laughs> so at first it looks good for our away, but in Caesar's death, our, our Cleopatra is like now's my chance to fucking off Arsene away like I've always wanted to because she's a bitch in Ephesus where the temple is Arsene away is being addressed as queen and Cleo's madder and madder and with Mark Antony on her side she's able to be like let's kill this bitch Arsinoe is killed on the steps of the Temple of Artemis, her blood staining one of the wonders of the ancient world. And she was about 20 years old at the time. 
that's why Arsinoe is just like a little tiny footnote because everybody wrote about Cleopatra because the older sisters are more iconic than the younger ones and they'll eventually murder their younger sisters. And that's just the short, short, boring story of Are Arsinoe. we actually going to grandma's 92nd birthday? Are you trapping me and you're going to murder yeah. me? I've got all the ants in on it also, so. I don't think they, mm, mm, no, they, they, they like me. The, the doubt <laughs> is I'm living off of it. Yeah. Well, good story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice threat. Yeah, this is all just a threat. <laughs> yeah, long. Historical threat. Not that, no. No, not long compared to yours. Mine was very long. I told you mine was going to be long. I think I can blast through mine. Um, also, there's some tie-ins to Rome cool. and some BC shit. Nice. But let's talk King Arthur motherfuckers. Yay. The classic question, did he exist or was he based on a real person? We're going to talk through it. So King Arthur first appears in late 6th, early 7th Welsh century welsh poetry he's a hero who led britons in battle against the saxon invaders those dirty dirty pagans Uh, in the 12th century king arthur is tied to a place called tintagel tintagel we'll go with that jeffrey of monmouth He's a Welsh cleric, and he writes the history of kings of Britain in 1136, and this is kind of the foundation of what we're going to be talking about. It traces Britain's history to Trojan exiles, 6th century King Uther Pendragon, sleeps with Egerna, wife of a local duke, uh, at her castle in Tintagel. Merlin made him look like her husband. And then Arthur is conceived. So gross. It's it's coercion. Yes. That's echoes the show. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Oh shit. It's just we do not it. endorse this show. No. It is a we don't weird, I don't even know what's going on. I don't on know what's in going it. on. We watched three episodes of it. Whitney watched the first episode twice. And, and she still could not tell us who anyone was. We got in fights. It was a whole thing. Uh Tintagel is a rocky promontory overlooking the Bristol Channel, basically a cliff mm-hmm. that's on its own. You get there from a footbridge linking Cornwall to this promontory. Below, there's waves crashing. There's a and it collects in a grotto known as Merlin's Cave. Fine, Ooh. I would go to that grotto. Hell yeah. And there's ruins of a medieval castle. Scholars have said, absolutely not. This is not King Arthur. Ancient. These are all ancient folktales, pseudo-history. Richard of Earl of Cornwall was no scholar, and he was a, he bought into this real big. And in May of 1233, he traded three prime estates for this treeless headland of Tintagel. Serves no purpose. He just wanted to position himself. Earl of Cornwall, also successor of Arthur. Authors after Geoffrey added more flair with Excalibur, Knights of the Round Table, the romantic triangle between Guinevere and Lancelot, the mortal wound at Battle of Camlin, Arthurian tales, Welsh 
eulogistic stanzas starts with those all the way to the Green Knight, who is the who's Gawain, if we all uh, yes, remember. Gawain, Sir Gawain. Sir Gawain. Dev Patel. Dev Patel <laughs> indeed. So people are into this because, you know, it's kind of a moral compass, especially when you can't find a moral compass around yourself or your time. <laughs> mm. Okay, but was he based on reality? When Scott, who's an archaeologist from Plymouth, England, he's kind of been running this thing for the last four years. Uh, ruins found, mentioned above, in the 1930s, and it was assumed it was a Celtic monastery. But four years of Scott and his team, they have excavated three additional houses, uh, including goblets from Spain. Cups from Morovian, Morovian, mm-hmm. <clears throat> leave it in there, uh, era France. Pottery from Tunisia and a lot of other stuff from a lot of other places. Carbon dating does identify it as 6th century. Uh, Scott could have, he says it could have been a home to the a mercantile elite who survived purely on trading. Scott says Tintagel was home, likely home to thousands during the Dark Ages. So that's when England was kind of thrown into a little bit of turmoil here and there. And they, I mean, it was hard to even find silverware or something mm-hmm. like any kind of utensil. And they kind of allowed them, it was very illiterate mm. and destitute times. But in Tintagel, these were really nice homes that weren't really Mm. built elsewhere. And it's not super crazy to think that a ruler or commander named Arthur came from here. Found 6th century slab with Artognu. Yes. Which people are like, that's Arthur. The legend of Arthur was born during Britain in a state of collapse because the Roman Empire there you go. Started a takeover in 55 BC. Oof. There was a Not long, that many years later, mm-mm, long and violent rule. But also, they built roads and established towns. And in 410 AD, Rome withdraws because they need to go fight these Germanic folks that are coming into Rome. So that leaves Britain with civil institutions vanishing, economy collapses, again, household goods become scarce, there's Saxon invasions, Britannia fragments into fiefdoms, fiefdoms ruled by dickheads, there's plague (laughs) and drought, which I don't think Are you bestowed a dickheddom, Mm -hmm. or is that inherited? It's more of a uh, proper term for your leader. Okay, 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 okay. Historians believe there was a heroic warrior type that rose to lead Britons, uh, Christians, against the Saxons, pagans. We'll get into that a little bit more. Welsh poem, uh, E. Godin, Gododin. I It's all Celtic, and like, I can't. Describes a heroic warrior named Arthur. This was written in five between 540 and 640, who knows? At the same time, a monk named Gildas describes some hero shit at the Battle of Baden Hill. And in 830, so 300 years later, a monk, Ninius, 
mentions a warrior named Arthur who leads 12 victories against the Saxons. Some say Ninius' account is uh, real Arthur. They base that, that's kind of their proof. And others are like, nah, (laughs) this account was written way late. Uh, The Middle Ages historians blend fact and fiction for political and religious advance. When Saxons were conquering Britons, they needed a God-beloved warrior to support their Christian uh, Mm. movements. Arthur won with the support of Jesus. Romans still admire were still admired in Britain, and so Ninius also derived the name from Artorius. So that's another take on Ninius's tale. Geoffrey of uh, Monmouth had a political agenda. He wanted to show the superiority of Celtic-speaking Britons. Because they were, they had, based on the language, they had been tied to Saxons and they were like, oh, they're barbaric, blah, blah, blah. Jeffrey's like, uh uh-uh, uh, no, we're smart, check it out. Jeffrey claims he gleaned Arthur's life from an uh, ancient wealth, Welsh history book. This is a little, the reason that people are like, mm, Jeffrey maybe did know his shit is that he describes Tainted Gel the exact way that it looks because the landscape is so specific. Uh, and it's not said that he ever went there. Jeffrey hmm. introduced Guinevere's infidelity to Arthur, the wizard Merlin, and a magical sword he called Caliburn, based on the Irish sword Calad Bolg, <laughs> a derivation of Welsh Calad. F- no, no, <laughs> no which later became known as Excalibur. He ended the tale on an island called Avalon, where Arthur is carried by the enchantress Morgan Le Fay after being mortally injured against Saxons in the Battle of Camlin. There's a lot of, no, Jeffrey, <laughs> sit down. <laughs> but also, in 1191, monks of Glastonbury Abbey found a pair of skeletons and said it was Arthur and Guinevere. And then, oops, now we're getting Taurus. This is great. <laughs> the 1191 tourists mm-hmm. the true believer king edward the first he was like bury those skeletons right now in 1278 and arthur because of that popularity he's now the medieval literary tale jeffrey's work is most popular text behind the bible at the time and they've found 235 surviving copies a lot have been were torn up when Henry VIII shuttered monasteries and they were used for wrapping pies. The story had at that point gotten over to France and then all over. There's this guy goes to a couple of different universities with a couple of different professors who study either literally Arthurian tales or medieval literature. And so he's the authors with or this woman Tether is her last name, one of the colleagues. And they discovered inside the bindings of one of these books uh, in 2019, seven parchment manuscript pages written in Old French dating to around 1250. So this would have been right after they got up. They are discarded and recycled uh, protective filler inside newer volumes. They show how the Arthur legend took on embellishments and mutations as it proliferated across Europe, including new characters, developing storylines, and reflecting the culture and different societies in which it appears. These seven pages are known as the Vulgate Cycle. This is where we start seeing dragons, Lady of the Lake, 
Hell yeah. Shit like that. The fun stuff. Yeah. And Thank then, you, French people. Yes. For Frenching it oh, up. You, you said it was all Messy. French, right? What? Messy. Me- oh, yeah. Thomas Mallory. He's a bad dude. Look that up later. Uh, he's the one that wrote Sword in the Stone, which gave it a lot of popularity. And then Lord Tennyson brings in the Guinevere, Arthur, and Lancelot trifecta. Tennyson also brought the story full circle. The Victorian poet described the waves of the Bristol Channel carrying the infant Arthur across uh, an abandoned castaway to the shore of Tintagel. There, Merlin stashes him in the grotto. He protects him from the enemies of Uther Pendragon. The elite throughout British history have loved Arthur. A lot of them like to claim lineage. Jeffrey of Monmouth's Arthur brings people to Tintagel tourists, and there's 250,000 tourists per year. So if you want to go see that grotto, we definitely can. Hey, add it to the Weird Brunch road trip. Yes. Yes. See, we'll drive to England. Yeah, we can do that. Mm -hmm. The English Heritage Group, they just, and tourism, they just let people think that those ruins are King Arthur's castle, (laughs) even though they're Edward's. They're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even though other people are like, absolutely not. It's what you want to listen to. Mm-hmm. They also turned the castle into a fairy tale theme park. They added a bunch of like Six Flags statue type shit all over the place. And then the whole area is just leaning all the way in. Disney-fied. Yes, yeah. and they're making that money. And so people are pissed. When Scott, however, this archaeologist, he's not ready to give up on King Arthur being real or based on a real person. And that's all clearly and purely based on uh, the findings at Tintagel and the comparison to the Dark Ages throughout Britain at that time. They Tintagel had crucibles to forge metal. They were inscribing slabs. They were controlling agricultural production. None of that was happening anywhere else in Britain and it was also positioned to avoid all of the the bullshit coming at them like Saxons and and other things and so jury is out on King Arthur being real oh that's what it is he was talking to this person who's the president of the British branch of International Arthurian Society and I was how many branches are there "Mm -hmm, I'm all of them man should we start an austin one if there's not one we can no we absolutely can so yeah this this current excavation and architect are saying hold up maybe which is not an answer every every five years there's a hold up maybe this is the newest one thank you so much short kept it real short you did yeah good job I'm looking at the pictures from Tinta It's Chow. beautiful. It is. Like, I want I want to go to there. It looks cool. It doesn't look that Disney fight, but I guess these are all, like, kind of far back photos. It's not. Yeah, if you get closer to, like, the ruins mm-hmm. of King Edward's castle, that's where I think they get a little Disney fight. They also may have taken it down because that happened, I think, in 2012. Yeah. And the people of Cornwall were like, get that shit out of here. We don't like it. It's disrespect. That King Arthur statue yeah. is fucking cool, though. Right? Looking at that. And the Merlin carved into a stone. 
Lucky. That's actually Merlin that he's trapped that in there. It's a the kind of a lich lit, situation. Lit, lit Merlin. But there's, again, a lot more I didn't cover with how people have used this story as manipulation, which is interesting. But Like political manipulation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like in the Victorian era, they were like, Guinevere was a filthy whore. Yeah, <laughs> of well, course. Because she, she was. was. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we should. That's just not that. pejorative yeah. anymore. It's like, yeah. yeah. Don't show an ankle, bitch. <laughs> Be a slut. Be a slut. Do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. So I think y'all might be able to make. Yeah. Yeah. Grandma's birthday. Grandma's. Hell yeah. We're only. Th- I, look, I thought we were farther. We're only 30 minutes from the yeah, home. Yeah, you know where it is. So y'all even have some chill time. Yeah. Time to get ready so we don't get judged for how we look. Oh. Well, we'll still get judged for how we look. It's just. That's true. We won't be the focus of it. That's no, it's true. who I wonder if anybody's not going to be there because they're the ones who's going to. I know Jenny's not, but that's because she's about she's to pop. Yeah. Um. Cool. Well, thank you for listening. This is like tired brunch. <laughs> tired brunch. It is tired brunch. <laughs> My vibe ants kicked in halfway through. Oh, I'm ready to go. That's nice. Mm-hmm. Let's okay. do a dance class together. Okay. Put it on. Um, rate us on Hot or Not or Apple Podcasts or wherever. Um. Yeah. So. Rate us, like us, whatever. Send us a message. Tell your friends about us. Tell your friends about us. And give us kisses. Give us little kisses. Little forehead kisses. Yeah. Okay, bye.